is this? Donuts. Okay. Go ahead. I can have them. You can have them all. These are for me. Yeah. Really? Yeah. Why? I don't know. You, just, you looked hungry. That is a good donut. All right, well, I got to hit the road. You mind, if I, you mind if I just take one for the road? Just, just one. Well, I am really hungry, and I missed breakfast this morning. I'm probably going to miss lunch, and I was going to take these home to my wife and kids. Really, to be honest, they got to last me the whole week. in the donut. Uh, uh, we, we want lives that reach to the furthest extent for the king because it's the right thing to do. And even if you are tithing and giving offerings and doing all of those things and you're convinced that, that you're doing your service to God by giving to this church, I want to tell you personally, that has nothing to do with your personal responsibility to the poor. Your personal responsibility to do God's work everywhere you go every day. Right? We, we do not give offerings to a church to take the place of our obedience. Uh, this church will never be about a holy man and a holy day and a holy fee and holy clothes and a holy building and a lot of holy uh, wrappings. It won't be that. Okay? It's going to be about the body of Christ being the body of Christ. Can y'all say amen to that? It's about you. Can we say amen again to that? We're done with lifting up heroes. We're all about Jesus now. Fair enough? Yeah. Okay, so this uh, this morning is December 23rd. It is 2012. And uh, I guess it's supposed to be a Christmas message. I don't really have one of those in me. Uh, I do have a message called Lever and Fulcrum today. Who uh, in here looks strong to you? Come on now. Cody. Don't be shy. Cody. Where you at, Cody? Cody? Is Cody in here? Run down here, Cody. Come on now. Come on, Cody. They, they said you were strong. All right. Cody's got long arms on him. Have you noticed that? He's got a wingspan, doesn't he? Cody, uh, hold your arms like this, right? Uh, Gabriel, come here. Push Cody's arms down. Cody, don't let it. Hang, Gabriel. All right, stand up, Gabe. Cody, stick your arms out like this. Now pull him down, okay? How is it that he's able to do that? I tell you, the longer the lever, the more strength there is in it. A German theologian named Ethel Stauerbaut, I used to read him a lot because he's the one that turned me on to the first century truths about who was in power and uh, who was being worshipped in December. Well, he was an author that I love. His books are in the library. And he said about Jesus... He is the archmedian point where the world can be shifted on his axis. He and no other. Now, that's old English, and it may not mean a lot to us. But it literally means that he is the place, he is the power to shift and move the world as we know it. In the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., 
a man named Archimedes, who's supposed to be the father of mathematics. Don't you want to go slap him? <laughs> said, give me a lever long enough and a fulcrum on which to place it, and I shall move the world. Quite simply speaking, if you make Cody's arm long enough, the smallest child in here can move his whole body. Well, I found the lever and the fulcrum. The fulcrum is the character of God revealed in His Word. And the lever is His Spirit, which He's given us for obedience to that Word. This morning we're going to talk about placing your life on the rock of His Word, exerting all of your might and strength in the power of the Holy Ghost to be obedient to changing the world. I do not believe that we call preachers and preachers change the world. I think at the very best, we call a huddle and tell you what the plays are. And we help you discern what God has called you to do. So that Ephesians 4 teaches us our job is quite simply to prepare you to do the work God called you to do. But in our nation, what has happened is we have raised up preachers who do not require of you to do work. And you have enjoyed it. Because the bigger and taller they are, the more we feel like we do something. The work of God has never gotten done through the rich and famous. In fact, when rich and famous people are called, one of the first things they do is sell everything they have because they catch the wind of the Spirit. Men like C.T. Stell who start their lives in mansions but finish them in tents in Africa. I do not believe that God needs the rich and famous. I believe He needs an ordinary man who is willing to attempt extraordinary things. <laughs> by the power of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Turn with me to Isaiah 9. This will be as close as we get to a Christmas sermon. <laughs> Tell me when you're there. 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 Y'all are going to have to resist all efforts to go into that comatose state where we simply nod and occasionally say amen and we uh, have heard a sermon. Our real goal here is to have a group participation. For us all to receive some kind of revelation that changes a life that empowers us to do something differently. Isaiah 9 is a popular scripture this time of year. In the first verse it says, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who were in distress. In the past he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. He goes on in the sixth verse to say, For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. We sing songs about this. In fact, we Googled it this morning and we found the Mormon Tabernacle Choir sing songs about this. It's so easy to sing words. And because they're religious and we hear them year after year, we might not have taken the time to really listen to what they're saying. How many of you walk into a building and say, hey, how are you? What does the other person say? Fine. You know good and well it's not true, but it's what they say and we don't even really hear it, right? We don't, take, we don't take the time to stop and go, that person literally just said everything in their life was at a good place. We don't weigh it. We didn't really mean it when we asked and we didn't really listen to their answer because words are cheap. But they're not cheap with God. They're refined seven times over. He says exactly what He means to say. Back in verse 1, Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom. 
gloom. This Hebrew word has to do with obscurity. It has to do with being abstract or confused, as if we turned down the light so low in here that you had trouble orienting yourself in the room. God said that there would be a day in which there would be no more gloom, confusion of purpose. For those who were in distress, distress had to do with being constrained, restricted, hemmed in. It literally means harassed by restriction as if to control your actions. Oh my goodness. Is there a world out there that is confused about their purpose? Who has abstract concepts of God, but there is no clear call of God in their life? People who are in distress, they're harassed by their very own behaviors and what the devil says about it, and it controls their actions so that they do not do what they want to do. Our king came to change a situation like that. Uh, Distressed. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Humbled. This Hebrew word has to do with caused to be taken lightly. Man, have you ever tried to tell somebody something important? Come on, you can talk to me. I mean, you're trying to get it across to them. But they're just not, they're just not taking you seriously. We have an entire group of our society that nobody takes seriously. We don't even look them in the eye. Right? We just keep walking. And you hear a story that says, you know, my house burned down and, 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 and we're not even listening anymore because words are cheap to us. We've heard it all before. We don't believe it. The last two times we heard it was a lie. So we're sure it's a lie this time. I want to make no mistake. Our Christmas stories that God appeared in the middle of that situation where people had an abstract purpose. They weren't really sure what was going on. They're hemmed in and harassed by their own behavior. More than that, they've been humbled to the point where nobody takes them seriously. Are you tracking with me at all this morning? Amen. I know, I'm supposed to tell you something about Santa Claus or some fairy story this morning that just makes everybody feel good. I want to do the work of God. With all of my heart, I want to do the work. And I don't want to leave any of it for somebody else to do. (laughs) I want to run out and gobble up as much of it as we can possibly gobble up. Humbled the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the future he will honor Galilee of the Gentiles by way of the sea along the Jordan. This is so crazy. Isaiah is prophesying in the 7th century B.C. Actually, it's the 8th century B.C. 720 to 740. Check this out. You say, Galilee. What do you all know Galilee as? It's Jesus' hometown, right? This is, this is the area around that sea that he worked in, that he walked on, all of those things. Do you know what it was in, in the 700s B.C.? It was the area that Assyria had just crushed and conquered. It was the area of the northern kingdom's downfall. The first areas to go into captivity because of disobedience. Galilee was no longer even considered Jewish. It was Galilee of the Gentiles. You say, well, what difference does that make? God came for the completely conquered. He came for those that had been completely overrun by the enemy. You know, when we say Gentile today, we know salvation is for Jew and Gentile. When Isaiah is speaking it, Gentiles were thought of like dogs. And there would be a child born in their midst that would change everything. Oh my goodness. What else did he go on to say? The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow and death, 
Here, darkness is a spiritual darkness. It has to do with misery, destruction, ignorance, and wickedness. All the reasons that we look for people to fellowship with, right? <laughs> I mean, we're all seeking out those who are miserable, those who are destroyed, those who are ignorant or wicked. That's what we're seeking out, isn't it? No, of course it's not. But the Spirit of Christ is. None of us wants to go hang out in a leper colony unless, of course, you believe that God put the power of God in you to heal the leper. Yeah. The shadow of death. This, this has to do with exactly what you would think it has to do with. Somebody living in all the effects, the full-blown effects of death. Come on, they're alive, but the existence is less than the abundant life God called them to. Oh, man. I know, sometimes when I speak, you think we're speaking of the homeless. I'm speaking just as much to those that live off of Sweetwater Boulevard in their million-dollar mansion. Because their life is not what God called it to be. Hemmed in, harassed by their own behavior. Complete captives. You want to show me a man who sleeps well at night? One who has found power over sin and vice. Who has found the spring of living water rather than that sewer of vice that the world is spitting out in every direction. For unto us a child is born, to us a son is given. Who is the us? Oh man, it's the broken. It's the downcast. It's the heavy laden. It's the trampled underfoot. It's the taken lightly. It is those who are distressed, gloomy, humbled, beyond description, outcast, under death, and in its shadow. Is that the message that we're hearing from our grand cathedrals? Are you disappointed that there were no crystal walls when you walked in here? No shiny pews? You know, I'll take the power of a changed life over any of the trinkets that men play with any day. My heroes are those that have forsaken all for the gospel. Those who left nothing for the trip home. You know... Christmas, in my house, my wife loves Christmas music. And I don't love Christmas music, but I love that she loves it. You know what I'm saying? Come on, where are you husbands out there? You have to know what I'm saying. Don't pretend you like all those movies that you go watch with your wife. And one of the things that she watches or listens to every year is Bing Crosby, right? Now, there's a, look, there's a few people in here that know what, what I'm talking about. This is a generational thing. I'm sorry about that. What do you think about a white Christmas? Yes. You know what the, what the best Bing Crosby quote I could find is? Unless we make Christmas an occasion to share our blessings, all the snow in Alaska won't make it white. Wow. Oh my goodness. He's dreaming of a white Christmas. What's a white Christmas to you? Is it a pretty setting where everything looks okay on the outside? Or is it one where you've seen people cleansed by the eternal living God? And they are now a life-changing force that overcomes evil everywhere they go. Amen. The kingdom of God is within us. The king, I, yeah, we got one amen for that. Shut up, what's wrong with us? <laughs> the kingdom of God is amen. within us. Wherever we go, yes, yes, man, amen. amen. Wherever we go, we bring a light into the darkness. Amen. So the church is used to reaching out. We'll get on our buses. We'll buy a plane ticket. If the itinerary is right, you can get anybody to go on a mission vacation, right? We don't do those in our church, but I've noticed a lot of people do. 
When we go on a mission trip, it's an actual mission trip. No shopping days, no spa days. We sleep where they sleep. We eat what they eat. We do what the Bible says to do. It's a shame that churches don't teach this stuff anymore. But I've noticed that we will go out as long as we can come back to our safe little dwelling. We will go out as long as we have a place to go back to that is free from, you know, all of that difficulty. You want to be a part-time Christian or you want to be a full-time Christian? See, I'm not a Christian when I leave my house. I'm a Christian when I wake up. I'm a Christian when I go to sleep. I'm a Christian at night while I'm dreaming. I'm a Christian full-time. So I'm not looking to go out and do something for Jesus and come back and take a vacation because I gave him my life. Anybody in here give him their life? Yes. Amen. There's no such thing as a part-time commitment to Jesus, friends. His work never stops. The Father's working to this very day, Jesus said. The heart of what I would like to share with you comes from Exodus 3. Please go there. Here lately I have felt the increasing weight of God's holiness. I feel the seriousness of what He's trying to do in our midst. I personally believe that we are headed for something I didn't think America had left in it. I think that there will be a revival in the southwest side of Houston. And I think that it's going to reach around the world. And it's going to be the kind of revival that has no great heroes except Jesus. No great authors except Jesus. No great preachers except Jesus. Humble, ordinary men doing extraordinary things. Where it's not about a great man and a great building. It is about our great God. I believe that. And because of it, it is changing the way that we live. Changing the way that we act. My family told me not long ago in a very loving way, we enjoy it when you preach and you know, you're, you're funny. I don't have a lot of funny in me lately. You know why? Because I'm overwhelmed with the thought that people are going to hell all around us. And I'm unwilling to let them burn while we laugh. Yeah. Now, if you walk around with that weight all of the time, who could do it? Right? Jesus laughed. He leaped for joy. He smiled. But you know where he got his real kicks? It was not from watching television. It was not from playing silly games. He leaped. He laughed. He was full of joy when he saw the oppressed liberated. You want to have a good time? You want to have a family night? Take your family out and win some souls. Go out and visit the homeless and see somebody set free from a cocaine addiction. It is a glorious thing. Yeah? Pay for an orphan to eat a meal in another country. Right? It is a glorious thing. We're going to have to retrain ourselves, saints, to love the things that God loves. Is anybody... I mean, it's Christmas, right? We're going to honor Jesus, right? We're going to celebrate His birth. We're going to do all of those things. And how are we going to do it? We're going to plunge off into materialism as deep as we possibly can. We're going to acquire more garbage that we don't really need. Is that how we honor Jesus? Only in the American church, right? Maybe the European church too, what's left of it, right? I think the way that we can honor Him is by a, a searing conviction that moves us to do the things He would do. I, I want to show Him I'm serious. Is there a man or woman out there that's serious about the Lord today? Yeah. I want to show you the heart of God. Is that fair enough? Yes. So many scriptures you can see the heart of God. And Exodus 3 is maybe, maybe my favorite. In Exodus 3, let us pick up in the verse 7. 
Say there if you're there. there. The Lord said, I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. What is the Lord's fascination with miserable people? What is it about the Lord that is always wanting to redeem, rescue, and set free? Why doesn't the Lord just look at them and then say, hey, you know, they did it to themselves. <laughs> Who has ever been in a bad position that didn't do it to themselves? Right? This goes all the way back to disobedience from Adam and Eve. And we've continued in their illustrious line of diseased stock of sinners. There is nobody in this room that did not bring misery upon themselves. But in the midst of that, Romans 5.8 says that God demonstrated his love for you. Amen. So how is it that we demonstrate our love? Well, we need to go find those who are still in the midst of their misery and give them a helping hand. Not as simply an act of social awareness, but a message the kingdom of God Amen. has come. Amen. He will heal your diseases. He will change your heart. He will fill your stomachs and he will fill your souls. I have indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I have heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. And I am concerned. Come on, church. Our God sees the condition of those who are trapped in slavery. The 8th chapter of John says that anyone who sins is a slave to sin. Our God sees that and He is concerned. Do you want a heart after God? We have to be concerned with what He's concerned with. You know what He's not particularly concerned with? Somebody's new Mercedes Benz. And if you got one out here, I'm sorry. I'm not trying to hurt your feelings. God is not interested in all of our comforts that make us feel good about ourselves. Amen. He's concerned about those that are under the thumb of a slave driver because the heart of the gospel has to do with being set free. Amen. Oh my goodness. At 18 years of age, I looked around and my life was full of prison. I had erected little bars everywhere. I built for myself a prison based on sin and vice. And he reached down into me and he changed my life. Amen. He set me free in such a way that this will be my 20th New Year's bonfire where we are doing holy things as we roll from one year into the next. And you know what? As many as he gives me, I want to see others set free. The Lord said, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers. I am concerned about their suffering. So I have come down. Come on now. Say that with me. I have come down. If he wasn't too good to come down, then how are we too good to come down? You say, but that person smells. That person slept under a bridge. God stepped out of the heavenly realm and became a human being. And we celebrated all over North America this time of year. He came down from that heavenly estate. And we won't lower ourselves with our fellow human beings. Look, if you picture Jesus in a golden diaper, you're, you're twisted. Okay, you've been twisted by the world that is around you and what they're presenting. The very fact that the living God was incarnated as a child Amen. and not a fully grown man is such a step down it's not fathomable to my... I, I can't begin to wrap my mind around that. The God who holds everything together by His powerful Word had to be fed every couple hours. His diaper had to be changed. 
How far is he asking you to step? Is the disparity that great? He created for us the longest lever in existence. He spanned the distance between deity and humanity for us. Amen. So that if we would set our feet upon the rock and grab hold of his spirit, we could literally move the world. Amen. He gave us the right place to stand. He gave us the example. I've learned something. Whether I'm in the ghetto in India, or I'm in a dirt village in Africa, or we're in the Amazon, I'm sorry, the Honduran rainforest, it makes no difference. Everybody has a pecking order. Right? In Latin America, it's the funniest thing to me. I can't, I can't use the word Hispanic freely everywhere because I found out that a Mexican sees a Puerto Rican differently than a Puerto Rican sees a Honduran. I found that out. I'm like, really? To me, all you guys are pretty similar. John and Joy, John's from Vietnam, his wife's from Laos. People from Vietnam and Laos see each other differently. To me, they look very much the same, right? They just do. That's not a racist thing. That is a truth, right? An uneducated, ignorant man here, if, they, if you like. They just look like people, right? We look for differences, and we have a pecking order. And God has one too, but it's not the one that you would use. The heavenly caste system is the one that takes the slave and makes him a king because he's set free. Amen. The worldly caste system holds the slave under the foot of the oppressor. But our king came to literally use that lever and turn the world upside down. So that a nation of slaves became the princes of the universe. Long before Freddie Mercury knew what that was. They became a kingdom of priests. The exclusive and treasured possession of God. I am concerned about their suffering, so I have come down to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptian and to bring them up. Our God did not go on a mission trip and say, here, here, here's a candy. Feel better about your life. Now I'm going to go back and be warm and well fed. Our God reached down to bring them up. The power of the gospel is the resurrecting power. Oh, that your hearts would be enlightened. That you might know the hope to which we're called. That you may understand the power that is ours Amen. in the resurrection of Christ. Because it reaches down into death and it raises up into life. Now we can believe this in some strange metaphorical sense about our lives. But Jesus is not like that. He didn't say this behind a curtain somewhere hiding. He demonstrated it physically for the whole world. We talk about faith to raise the dead. It starts with faith to raise a life out of the ashes. It starts with faith to make a difference in someone's today. So, well, I don't have enough. I don't know what you have. The spirit of the living God. Yeah. Sasha had been filled with the Holy Ghost all of seven days. And she just saw miracle power. Is it because she's a theologian? Is it because she's the most mature among us? Perhaps it's simply because she was willing. Oh my goodness. On the day of battle, Israel's priest would step out and say, if you're scared, go home. We don't need you. You know who we need? Those who want to be here. The body of Christ is not made up of those who were drafted. It is a volunteer army. It is a volunteer group of believers. Those who desperately want to do the work of God. You don't build big churches preaching like this, at least not in the way that the world calls big. And I do not care today, did not care yesterday, 
and God is my witness with the elders here to hold me accountable, I won't care tomorrow. I want to be surrounded by those who are interested in rescuing. I want to be surrounded by those who dare to challenge, dare to disagree, dare to find out where the Lord's favor is. I am concerned about them, so I have come down to rescue, to bring them up. I came down to bring them up, the Spirit of God said. And let me ask you, in 1600 B.C. or 1400 B.C. or between the 14th and 16th century, however you like to say it, did God incarnate? Did He come down? Did He come down in the flesh and grab an Israelite's hand and raise them up? Did He do it? Come on, theologians. When did, when did the Word become flesh? you got a Gregorian calendar. We number our years based on it. When did it happen? 2012 years ago. So how is it that God is saying then, I have seen their misery, so I am coming down to bring them up. How could He say something like that? Because when God wants to do something on the earth, He uses a man to do it. Come on, you are that man. You are that woman. You're as called as Moses ever was called. You know why? The Spirit of Christ is calling you. He's doing it right now and He's been doing it for years. He's saying, whosoever will come, whosoever, and it's not just your salvation that's at hand. He saves you so He can put you to work. He saves you so He can fill you with His life-changing power and say, you know what? If you just believe, you can go do greater works than I did. Amen. Amen. He can say that because he can multiply himself out hundreds and millions of times simply by pouring his substance into you. Yeah. Charismatic Pentecostal brothers, we've reduced this to speaking in tongues and how silly is that? <laughs> I love, I, I speak in other tongues all day long, right? If I'm, I don't seem to be paying attention to you, it's probably going on in my mind, right? All day long. But I'd give that up in a moment just to be filled with the power to change lives. Good news is they're not mutually exclusive, right? One edifies you and encourages you so that you can go do the other things. But please don't think because you can pray in another language or think that because you can prophesy or think that because you have any spiritual gift that you're alleviated from the things that God is concerned about. This was never about us. Psalm 67 has it right. May the Lord be gracious and compassionate to bless us and make His face shine upon us that His ways may be known, that His salvation would be known among the nations. Everything that He's done in Alex's life, everything that He's done in Jacob's life, He's done in the hope that they will catch His heart and go rescue people. Amen. Oh, well, there's an evangelistic spirit floating through there. There is the spirit of Christ floating through. Where were you when He found you? Anybody in here was righteous when He found you? Then where are we going to find them? The heart of God is that we would step down to raise them up. And the people always say the same thing. God says in verse 10, So now go, I am sending you to Pharaoh to bring my people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. But Moses said, Who am I? Lord, isn't there, isn't there a more popular pastor somewhere? Lord, somebody with a bigger church? And there's somebody with more resources? You know, who's cool or hip? Or, I don't know, Lord, somebody that they'll listen to? Isn't there somebody somewhere? Anybody other than me? God's people have always had the same excuses. Uh, send somebody else. After being set free yourself, 
can we really say send somebody else? A few verses later, he gets the right question. Friends, it's never been about you. It's not who are you. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. That is what you are to say to the Israelites. I am has sent me to you. When Moses stopped asking who he was and started asking who God is, now he's on the right track. Our God is more than enough. Our God is able to supply our needs. Our God will go further than you ever thought that he would, stepping down to raise others up. Let me ask you something. Just, just Let's just get brass tacks here for just a second, because we can do that. If I volunteered your house, said as many as I can put in that bus will be there Christmas morning. Does that make anybody just a little squeamish? A little bit nervous, right? I just, I just don't know if I feel called to that, you know. Well, what are you called to, friend? If it's not about caring for other people, what is it that we're called to? So, Eric, do we all have to buy buses? No, that's not what I... I, I've only had one a couple weeks, right? That's not it. God is directing our hearts and the things that His heart is after them. And it's not just happening here. It's happening in lots of places. You ought to listen to Paul Washer preach. Every once in a while, listen to David Platt preach. You know? That's as close as I can get to endorsing the Baptist church because they're not regular Baptists. These guys have got something that is different. They found the heart of God. Oh, Jesus. I want to step down that we can raise others up. I found out from Philippians 2, and you don't have to go there, that the further you step down, the higher He will raise you. Before we get to that, I remembered from a book called Was Christ God? It's in the library right now. It's not checked out. By the way, I took my library, everything that I ever liked to study in my life, and I put it here for you. You know why I did that? Because I want you to have everything that I've had and more. I want you to take it further than I ever had it. We need to get out of the idea that we're electing a hero to go and do our work and start to take personal responsibility. Lately, there's been this kind of movement in people's homes. They're withdrawing from organized religion, and I know why. I did the same thing. And they're saying, you know, we don't have to meet in, in, in all of that yuckiness. It's not of God anyway. We'll just fellowship here. I understand, friend. I want you to know I empathize with you if you've said that. I started a church out of my house. I'm here to tell you, we do not have to withdraw and go isolate to do that. We can build it correctly here and now. And we can hold each other accountable for that. And we can walk with the Lord. And you know what? Whatever you do here does not take the place of what you were doing at your house. It just gives you more brothers and sisters to do it with. I want to encourage you. When you look around, the people around you are ordinary people. But if the Spirit of God is in them, they're able to minister to you. And if the Spirit of God is in you, you're able to minister to them. We are a nation of priests. When we get together, what we ought to be doing is practicing our trade. Right? You shouldn't be waiting for somebody to prophesy to you. You ought to be asking if you can prophesy to them. You shouldn't be hoping that somebody will come and pray for you. Why don't you take the lead and go pray for them? Say, well, I just didn't know it was allowed. It's allowed. It's allowed. It's encouraged. It's encouraged. It's all we want. We'll consider ourselves a success when you all prophesy, pray, lead people to salvation, all of those things. One of the things I love today, I didn't ask Joel to get up and pray for people. The Holy Ghost told him to. You know, say, well, you're the pastor. Why didn't you go do it? Because God saw fit to ask Joel, and I liked it. 
Is that fair enough? Yeah. If Jesus asked Joel, who am I to say no? Amen. And I happen to know him and approve of his life. I happen to think he's a fine man of God who will probably go further, longer, faster, harder than I ever did. And he's got more years to do it. Praise God for that. Amen. That's what the gospel is. It's a transition from what God's done for you to doing it to other people. So I found this book, What's Christ God? I, I, look, Spiros Hades is one of those, he's an intellect that's beyond me, but I, I cherry-picked a story for you. A native of interior China wanted to become a Christian but couldn't understand how Christianity was superior to Confucianism and Buddhism. That's fair enough. You understand with language barriers and ingrained cultural beliefs how difficult it could be to be confronted with a new message, one you've not heard and not understand? What if you were completely dependent on only what God revealed to you? What would your life look like? If nobody had given you the four spiritual laws or the Mickey Mouse prayer at the altar or whatever it is that they did to stamp you a USDA Christian, what if only what God had done in your life was all there was? How would you pass that test? This man didn't understand. So one morning he came to the missionary in a happy mood saying, I dreamed last night. And now I understand. I dreamed I had fallen into a deep pit where I lay helpless and despairing. Oh my goodness, it sounds like he fell into the Galilee in the 700s. Confucius came and said to me, I'll give you some advice, my friend. If you can get out of your trouble, you should never get into it again. Buddha came and said, if you can climb up to where I am and I can reach you, then I'll help you. He said to the missionary, then your Christ came. And he climbed down into the pit. And he carried me out. Amen. Oh, I imagine that man made a fine Christian. He knew what it was to be completely helpless. For every construct that he had ever evaluated and decided to try to follow. To simply be the works of the flesh and unable to save. He now has the only theological degree he'll ever need. What God did for him was something he never could have done for himself. Amen. Amen. He didn't wait for him to climb up. He didn't wait for him to get good enough. He reached down to where he was and raised him up to where God is. Have you ever read in Ephesians 2 that you're seated at the right hand of Christ? Do you know we have the very chance to participate in the works of Christ simply by stepping away from that seat for a minute and say, as good as it is right here, Lord, and I love it. It's, it's awesome. I need to go out into hell and steal some goats from the devil and make them cheat for you. I'm about to go attack the gates of hell with a water gun, Lord. Are you proud of me? Do you love it? Because he does. He delights in giving us the kingdom. You know how he gives you the kingdom? <laughs> Same way that he gave Israel the promised land. He says, there it is. I'll give you the power. If you're willing, I'll give you the power. You've got to go take it, though. You advance the kingdom when you see Satan's reign fall from people's lives. You advance the kingdom when you see an addiction fall to the ground. You advance the kingdom when you dare to love somebody that everybody else has forgotten. And that's exactly what Jesus did in your life. Amen. Exactly. Tell the truth. Were your friends and family content to just let you be? Yeah. Were they convicted to the point... I mean, if when you got born again, were they upset because your fire was bright enough to make them look kind of bad? Yeah. Man, I've seen it so many times. Our God loves us enough to not leave us the way we are. 
He loves us enough to upset the apple cart. He loves us enough to go in, kick the slave master in the face, and set the people free. Amen. You want to be about his business? There was a spirit that God put into the Old Testament saints. And I would like to tell you when we say that, it sounds like they're different, right? You know, everybody's ever been born, had the same basic hunger, the same basic fears, the same basic need for shelter and clothing, the same basic, they were human beings. Sometimes in our scientific realm, we can say things like, if it happened a billion years ago, it's so far removed that it's like Star Wars, right? It happened in a galaxy long ago, far away, right? It becomes believable if it's so far away. And we forget that when speaking of an Old Testament saint, James says Elijah was a man just like who? Just like Brandon. Just like Kevin. Just like Brenton. Just like Abby. Just like Jacob. Just like us. There was a certain spirit that was in them that was courageous, though. It's so exciting. Look at this one. This comes from uh, 2 Samuel 23. Are y'all bored already? No. 2 Samuel 23. Yeah. Go to the 20th verse. Now, in our fad-driven society, our uh, ridiculous uh, pursuit of whatever will sell, you're not going to find a prayer of Ben and I. You'll find the prayer of Jabez because it talks about enlarging your tent, right? It appeals to the greed, the, the materialism that's already worshipped among us, and now we've just put a cloak on it of Christianity. You're, you're not going to hear, you're not going to walk into somebody's house and see inscribed on the wall this passage about Ben and I. But I'd like you to remember that this guy woke up one day, just like you woke up. He put on, well, his clothes didn't, he probably wish he had boots like these. But uh, he put on his cloak, right? And he goes out, and Benaniah, son of Jehoiada, was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel. Let me ask you something. When you think of Jesus, how do you think of him? Do you think of this um, uh, so spiritual that he almost looks effeminate? Big eyes, little bitty hands, uh, iconic painting of Jesus? Uh, do you have the Jeffrey Hunter Jesus, the blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus that uh, looked like he was a California surfer? What Jesus is it that you... Because the Bible presents him particularly in the book of the Apocalypse as a warrior of warriors. His robe drenched in blood. Names that he himself has earned and nobody knows written on him. A double-edged sword from him. Right? Not this little lamb. A lion of Judah. He was a valiant fighter from Kabzeel who performed great exploits. He struck down two of Moab's best men. He also went down into a snowy pit. I'm sorry, went down into a pit on a snowy day and killed a lion. The next verse goes on to say he struck down a huge Egyptian, although the Egyptian had a spear in his hand. Benaniah went against him with a club. He snatched the spear from the Egyptian's hand and killed him with his own spear. Now it sounds like, why is all of this blood and guts? He's trying to fill you with an anticipation. Paul has told us that we no longer battle against flesh and blood, but against spiritual powers in the heavenly realms. Where is the desire that says, I only have this club, and he has a machine gun, but because God's with me, I can take it. Where is the desire that says, I'm outgunned and outnumbered, and this is the perfect place for God to get some glory. 
Where is that spirit that says, I do not have enough, and yet, with God, I could never admit to that. With God, I'm going to say that He'll multiply it by His touch, and I'm going to invite them all anyway. Where is the spirit that says, unimaginable odds are just what I was born for, because the power of God is in me. Oh, church, this is something you should rise to. I'm going to tell you the truth. This is not the kind of thing that we sit on our salvation. You know why? You become more guilty every day of apathy. You become a little more obligated every message you hear like this. You cannot know the truth and walk away unmoved. The 12th chapter of Luke also tells us that he who has given much, much is required. You know what? You have everything that you could possibly need except the will to do it. That has to come from you. This is why the Bible tells us to set our will on Him. Ben Crosby said, all of the snow in Alaska wouldn't make Christmas white if we don't make it an occasion for uh, good deeds, for charity. This guy went down into a pit on a snowy day. Oh man, it was raining righteousness. You know why? He loved not his life so much as to shrink back from death. He considered the glory of God worth the risk. Is there anybody out there that has a bold, daring spirit? Look, you've been hurt in church. I can see it in your eyes. When you haven't been hurt in church, you've been kicked around by the world. I understand it. Men have lied to you. You've seen ridiculous excesses. Why don't we quit making excuses and stand up and be the real thing? How long can we stand back and blame everybody else's mistakes? When do we come of age? When do we say, I will stand and be what Christ called me to be, despite what everyone else is doing? Where's that spirit of Joshua that says, but as for me and my house? Knowing that the nation wasn't going to do it right. Me and my house, we will do it right. Come on now. See, I'm going to tell you it's contagious. When one sets an example and another follows, before long it becomes an avalanche of people. You want to change the world? We simply need to be obedient to the spirit that's in us without question. Turn with me to Luke 2. Talk about turning the world upside down. Another Christmas scripture. Y'all are very quiet today. I've heaped conviction upon you, haven't I? In Luke 2, you know this story. Luke takes us through the birth and the watering clothes in the manger. It takes us through the story of the shepherds and the good announcement to them uh, about God bringing peace upon the earth. He gets presented at the temple. And in Luke 2, starting in verse 33, we see this. The child's father and mother marveled at what was said about him. Then Simeon blessed them. And said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and rising of many in Israel. Oh my goodness. The prophet could see in the distance something. And you know what? He only saw the half of it. He didn't just cause the rising and falling of many in Israel. He saw the rising and falling of many in the world. Our king has come to take that which is lowly and not esteemed by men and esteem it in the heavens. And he's come to take that which is esteemed among men and abase it, squash it, utterly crush it. 
Our God does this to prove a powerful message to the heavenly realms. You want to dwell in God's mercy. His mercy is everything. His mercy is everything. You want to rise or do you want to fall? I want to rise with Him. This is a spiritual law that shows up all over the Bible. God exalts the humble and He crushes the proud. Look at Luke 3.10 while we're on that subject. Look at Luke 3.7. How about that? John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers. All right, how's that for an altar call? How's that for a seeker-sensitive message? You brood of vipers. Did, was John just not with it? Did he not get the right books? I mean, I, I'm, I'm asking. I mean, is John a failure? Don't you think most pastors would think he was a failure? How long was this ministry? Wouldn't you call that a failure? In and out in six months? Uh, how many great miracles is John known for? What's wrong? Y'all are quiet. How many great miracles is John known for? You can't name any, can you? So he liked to call people brood of vipers. When they're coming to be baptized, he turns them away. And he's not a failure. Why is he not a failure? I want you to get this question that they're going to ask him. It's a question I've never heard in church. I admire the Jewish nation. I really do. I know they catch a beating in the scriptures sometimes and people don't understand it. They're like the older brother who messed up and did everything first and we get to learn from them. We really do. I knew two guys that were missionary sons and one of them got arrested for fighting, got arrested for stealing, all of those things. And the other one didn't, didn't have any any of those things. And I said, hey man, how did that happen? You know, you guys were raised in the same house. He said, I saw what my brother did and the consequences that were there and I learned. <laughs> I decided that I will not do, right? John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I can tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown in the fire. How much preaching have you heard on fruit in keeping with repentance? That's not a subject Americans talk about a lot. Apparently, the state of these people's hearts could be borne out in their actions. And before he allowed them to be baptized, he wanted to see the power of a changed life to which baptism testifies. I love their response, though. As bold as John is, he calls them brood of vipers. How did the people respond? Come on, you read it to me. You can read. What should we do then? They go to the church of their day. They leave the religious system of their day and go out to see a crazy prophet in the wilderness who's baptizing in the Jordan. And by the way, Baptism was a part of the Jewish life. It was. It's called mikvah. But this was different because they were being baptized not as sons but as sinners to repent. A baptism of repentance. That was not a part of the Jewish life. And they come out to him and he calls them snakes. And the response is, what should we do then? What American church do you know you could go stand in and preach and say, you people are vile. You're snakes. <laughs> and they would respond, what should we do then? 
<laughs> and yet we're sure we're better than these people. I don't think. I don't think. I think that the heart that says, not what must I believe, not what must I agree to, not where do I sign in a doctrinal statement, but the heart that says, what should I do? This is the heart of God. Because He didn't stand in the heavens and say, I believe that the Egyptians should let the Israelites go. I believe that the Israelites should have the promised land. I will set it forth in creed that this should be done. He leads down. And He did something about it. What does the Spirit of Christ in you compel you to do? Just believe? The world's being turned upside down by those who are willing to do it. Heaven's caste system is coming to the earth. How many of you in here are of noble birth? Not one hand went, oh, one. One did. But I know her, and she's talking about being born again. And yet the king of the universe put his substance inside of you. Turn with me to Mark 6. In Mark 6, we're going to pick up around the 30. Why don't we just pick up in the 38th verse? 37th verse. But he answered, you give them something to eat. They said to him, that would take eight months of a man's wages. Are we to go and spend that much on bread and give it to them to eat? Maybe they had that much, maybe they didn't. At least they would be willing to spend it if he told them to. That would be something. Jesus is not asking for you to do something that you don't have. Look at verse 38. How many loaves do you have? Go and see. You know what's wrong with the prosperity gospel? They'll ask you to give what you don't have. And they'll appeal to your greed to do it. They'll say, hey, the more you give, it's like God's a credit card program and you'll get back more. It's, it's absurd. It's a fishing of funds that's devilish and should be condemned by every man of God from every pulpit everywhere. The fact that it isn't is a sad state of affairs today. Jesus said, go and see what you have. I'd like you to take an inventory of your life. What gifting is getting dusty? What areas of your life are getting calloused? Go and see what you have. When they found out, they said five and two fish. Is that a bunch? Come on, you know the story. Is that a bunch? If you're facing 5,000 people, is that a bunch? No. Jesus never needed you to have a bunch. You have whatever he gave you. But when you give it back to him, it multiplies. He's not limited by you. He's only limited by disobedience. He's limited by a lack of desire to do what he says to do. Five loaves and two fish by nobody's estimation would ever be enough to feed 5,000. But when they took what they had and put it in his hands, yeah. it suddenly became enough. Yeah. You know what? This little ministry grew out of uh, a living room. I mean, our most official first service, right? We had two folding chairs. One for Jen, one for me. The neighbors didn't come that we invited. But to the extent that we will put whatever he has given us on the line and risk it every day for his kingdom, he blesses what we do. Because he's seen the misery of his people. And he wants to reach down to raise them up. He wants to do that. And you know what wars against our thoughts, what wars against our minds, what, what we fight with? 
that if I risk it and it doesn't work, what will happen to me? But we'll sing songs and talk about if he saved me, that would be enough for me. Well, he's already done that, friends. He's already done it. He's already given you that box of donuts we saw in the video. Now what we're arguing about is how much of our life we're going to give him back. Doesn't he deserve all of it? Yes. One person thinks he does. Doesn't he deserve all of it? Yes. Hard to talk with that giant lump in our throat, isn't it? How many do you have? Anybody in here got more than five loaves and two fishes? Okay, now I'm actually going to... I've been taught that preaching demands a response, right? So how many of you have more than five loaves and two fishes? Raise your hand if you do. There's some of you so used to sitting in church, you couldn't be obedient no matter how many times I asked to raise your hand. Could you? I love you. God will deal with you. If we asked you to raise your hand, how many of you have fed 5,000 people, what would that answer be? So we have more than they had, but we're doing less. How does that work? How's that going to square up in the heavenly realms? See, I think that we're just beginning to become undignified. I think we are just beginning to learn what it is to strip off our royal adornment and dance in the presence of the Lord. And I think He loves it. Amen. You know who doesn't love it? The religious spirit watching from the window. But I don't much care about them. I think He loves it. When people do not protect their lives, but they give up their floor, their couches, their bedrooms, whatever they have to give up because they deem the gospel worth it. Friends, we're learning what it is to participate with Christ. We're learning what it is to be of Him. And that's the beginning of revival. Amen. Turn with me to Luke 14. We're going to bring this to a close soon, but there's two more things that I need you to know. And then an elder spent all day cooking a jambalaya. And he put the finest things in it. He got a recipe from a man who wins contests doing this. Now, wisdom would say... If you're going to make jambalaya and you don't know how many people are going to be there and it's going to be an ongoing thing, you make it as cheap as you can. But we don't think that's the spirit of Christ. So we made it the best that we knew how. And we're going to get better at it. You don't like jambalaya, you'll like this. We'll pray for you. In Luke 14, verse 10. But when you are invited, take the lowest place. So that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you will be honored in the presence of your fellow guest. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And when you read that, am I the only one here that puts myself in the story? I mean, when you read it, do you imagine at all yourself in the story? Did you see yourself taking a seat at the table? Did you see the master reaching to you saying, friend, come up here? friend, move to a better place? What if though you are the body of the master? What, what if you were the master in the story because you are a part of the body of Christ? Then what are you doing? You're looking for those who are seated in the lowest positions and what are you doing? You're trying to help them move to a better place. Amen. See, the difference is we always see Jesus doing it for us. He's already done it. Now he wants us to do it for other people. Amen. Are you hearing me? Yeah. When I read that, my natural inclination is to see me at the foot of the table. And Jesus says, oh, thank you, Jesus. Yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> but 
what if Jesus has said, you are my body, you are the arm by which I am going to reach out to them, go find the lowest and help them move up. Amen. Amen. Oh, now you may be sitting in here going, you don't understand, I'm the lowest. Friend, I've traveled enough to know it's not possible to be the lowest and live in this country. All of you had clothes to put on to get here. Almost all of you have access to at least one meal in a day. My friends in Opingo's Orphanage do not have access to a meal in a day. And they will eat Wendy for six months out of the year because there's some nutrition in it and it's all they can get. Right? I don't care where we are in life. Whatever the Lord has done for us, we have an obligation to go and help others do. And when we begin to do this, the world starts to shift on its axis. How about Luke 16? I heard a man named Andrew Strom. In fact, Stephen and Marita invited me to go hear him speak. Oh my goodness, by the time the man turned to about the third scripture, I was ready to get born again again. I don't know what you think about him. And I, I love him, okay? Uh, that doesn't mean that I agree with everything that the man says. It means that when he speaks, I'm convicted, and I, I like that. I want to get closer to Jesus. I'm not looking for somebody to make me feel better about myself. My flesh does a good job of that anyway. What I want is what the Lord thinks of me. And he preached from uh, Luke 16, and I, uh, that Bible stolen, but I remember writing in it, this changes everything. And it does, he was preaching about God's preferential treatment for the poor. But before I get to what I wanted to show you with heaven's caste system. I want to show you what I've outlined and read in my Bible. It's verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of men, but God knows your hearts. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. You remember what I said about putting ourselves in the scripture when we read it and visualizing it? We have the hardest time putting ourselves in the position of a Pharisee. To us, it means hypocrite. They were the religious reformers of their time. They believed in the resurrection when the religious establishment didn't. There were fewer than 3,000 of them in Jerusalem during the time of Christ, and most of them, most all of them, had the first five books of the Bible memorized. They were unbelievable um, zealots for the Torah. And they had something fundamentally wrong that I think the most ardent followers of Christ in our nation have wrong. They were devoted to money. They were occupied by thoughts of it. They fought over offerings. They probably devised continual building campaigns just to make sure the people gave. They may have even given away positions in the local synagogue to make sure they retained people. They probably did all the same things that religion does today. I do not want your money. I want your devotion because he bought it. He deserves it. And I'm going to tell you the truth. As long as you're hanging on to things that's more precious than him, and the proof is when you cannot give it away, then it is more precious than the one who told you to give it away. We're all, we all like, oh, oh, I hope this is like Abraham and Isaac. When Isaac and Abraham went up that mountain, neither of them knew that they were going to walk back down the same way. 
We're so sure that he doesn't want us to sell everything that we don't even consider it anymore. What is highly valued among men is detestable in God's sight. How many of you want that well done, my good and faithful servant? Say, I want it. I want it and I'm going to have it because I will do whatever it takes in the way of crucifixion of the flesh to get it. I will do whatever it takes, whatever he requires of me, bar none. I've already crossed that bridge. Can you imagine getting there and saying, Lord, Lord, and you're expecting to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant. And he says, what was valued among men is detestable in my sight. I'm not here to preach against mega churches. I'm not here to throw stones at anybody. I'm here to get our house in order. I want the king of the universe to be proud. When we sacrifice for him, when we step down to help others up, I know that's his heart. I know it from the 25th verse. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here. And you are in agony. There is going to be a turning upside down of everything that you have known in the world. The Isaiah scripture that everyone quotes for Christmas in Isaiah 9 says, of the increase of his government, there will be no end. And what is his government based on? His government is based on going to the poor. It's based on going to those who are captive. It's based on going to those who are in gloomy dungeons and setting them free and making them kings. It's based on the rising of some and falling of others depending on their pride and their lack of obedience to God's word. You want to be a prince in his sight? Be obedient till it hurts. And if it doesn't hurt, then you haven't found the beginning of obedience. Because he said, if any man, if any, not a few, not, not Chinese Christians, if any man, not Korean Christians or Indian Christians, if any man would follow me, he must deny himself and take up his cross. So when we take honest stock of that, are we living the good life now at the expense of the life to come? Are we participating in the sufferings of Christ now so that we will be kings with Him when He comes? I'm not telling you to go find a burlap sack. I'm not telling you to practice aestheticism or a monastic life. I'm telling you that whatever you have, be it five loaves and two fishes or seven loaves and two fishes, whatever it is, put it at His disposal. Lay it all on the line. Could you put Daniel 2.35 on the screen? Daniel saw a vision of the kingdoms of the world. And you talk about being turned on its end. A lever long enough to move the world. Daniel saw a head of gold. He saw a bronze chest of silver. He, he saw a bronze in the midsection. And legs of iron that went down into toes of uh, partly clay and, and partly iron. And this symbolized the kingdoms that would rule the world, right? The Babylonians, the uh, Medo-Persians, the Greeks, and the Romans. The infrastructure of the world. And something happens. Then the iron, the clay, and the bronze, the silver, and the gold were broken to pieces <coughs> at the same time and became like chaff on a threshing floor in the summer. Do you remember how John the Baptist announced Jesus' message? winnowing fork is in his hand. 
It's winnowing out the grain, and the chaff is burning with unquenchable fire. <laughs> the wind swept them away without leaving a trace. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. The kingdom of our God will fill the entire earth. And it has a completely different authority structure than the one that we're living in now. He takes the lowly things and he exalts them. And he takes the proud things and he pushes them down. Oh, I want to be found already humble before God. I want to be found with everything that I have at his disposal. And I want to know the joy and contentment that comes from being tired for working in his service. I want to know what it is to have laid it all on the line for somebody else's benefit, just like he did for me. This is what it is to know Christ, the heights and the depths of Christ, the breadth of Christ. This is what it is to know Jesus. So do you want to know him? Yes. Amen. Do you really want to know him? Yes. yes. Then it's going to require more than passive acceptance of a message. It's going to require you to do something. Did you know that at every Jewish feast, everyone that left the doors open to their houses, they left seats for guests. Did you know that? At, at Passover, you left at least two seats open. One for Elijah, who they were waiting to come, called Elijah's seat. And the other for anybody that might be passing by on the street. God's feast were never exclusive. That's an American idea. Oh, this is for me and my family. Well, I bet right now, even in your own family, you're thinking of people you'd rather not have at your house on Christmas morning. You want to be like Christ, I'm going to encourage you to do something different. I'm going to encourage you to step out until it hurts in some way. And then to go to bed with a smile on your face because you loved him enough to do it. Let's stand our feet. Jesus was always eating in the scripture. A meal was a form of reconciliation. In the ancient world, to fix a meal for lots of people was not an easy thing because you didn't go to Walmart. Your meat wasn't wrapped in cellophane. You had to kill it. Well, you had to grow it first. Then you had to kill it. Then you had to cook it. So what would happen is I would go to Matthew's house. He would have killed the fattened calf. Or if it's Passover, he's killed the lamb. And as a gift to Matthew, when I got there, I would bring dishes. He would get to keep the dishes in return for the meal because dishes were hard to come by. Our meal would be at least four hours long. It would have four courses to it. We would recount the promises of God during that out of Exodus 6.6 6, about being brought out and, and joined to God, right? Being with Him. And when we were done, we would push away from the table a little bit and sleep till the next morning because most of the meals had four glasses of wine in them. And it was late and you didn't get to drive home. You got to walk, right? A meal was a form of reconciliation. It was a way of saying... I'll bring you something, you'll bring me something, and we'll rejoice in how good God's been to us both. Amen. So I'm inviting you all to a meal right after this service in the other room. But more than that, I'm encouraging you to invite other people to your meals. I'm encouraging you to reconcile people to God as if you were an ambassador for Him. I'm encouraging you to say things that nobody else will say. To look people right in the eye and say, friend, God can fix your sin." Not to just look the other way, not to not care, not to make eye contact, but to see a situation and own it. Because you're a son of God. Yeah. And if you don't, who will? Join hands with the people around you.